remember one time I was walking in Jerusalem. I was 14 years old, and I was with my grandpa. He's 94. Um, and we were walking, and I passed by a poster, and it was a falafel sandwich in it. And it had on the top Israel's national snack. Mm. And then inside the pita bread was this hoisted Israeli flag. Mm. And I remember that sat so uncomfortably with me for such a long time until I later realized that that is literally and figuratively a conquering of Palestinian culture. I'm your host, Dee Dee Madigan, and you're listening to another episode of Home Plates. This week, we are discussing Palestinian food in recognition of Palestinian Awareness Week. Amira joins me in the studio, and we discuss Palestinian cuisine, politics, and culture. This episode does get more political than others, but I do hope that it provides an introduction into this topic and issue and that you keep exploring these issues and keep reading about them. Just a reminder to subscribe. We are on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn, and new episodes are out every Wednesday. Stay tuned. You're listening to another episode of Home Clicks. Welcome to another episode of Home Plates. I'm your host, Dee Dee Madigan, and with me today is Amira. Uh, and she's going to talk to us about Palestinian food because the week, this week, because we're recording it early, but uh, this week when you're listening to it is going to be UW's uh, Palestinian Awareness Week. Yep. So she's going to talk a little bit about the Palestinian culture and specifically the food. Would you like to introduce yourself a little bit? Sure. Thanks for having me. So, as Grace said, my name is Amira. I am a law student my second year. Uh, also a double dog, I went here for undergrad. And I am half Palestinian. My father is a Palestinian. He's from Bethlehem. And I was born and raised here in Seattle, but I spent a lot of my childhood summers there in Bethlehem with my dad. Before we dive into the food, I did want to kind of do like a little background on Palestine for people who just like don't aren't familiar with the region and the history um, because it is it is kind of like you know confusing and stuff so can you talk a little bit about the current political situation of Palestine maybe a little bit of the geography too and the regions and how it's been split up and sure not Palestine is kind of like Swiss cheese at the moment and that's because of the occupation um, right now there are I would refer as like three big parts. There's the occupied West Bank, which includes Bethlehem, Nablus, Ramallah. You have that, and that is currently under military occupation by the Israeli army. And no one can exit or enter without authorization or a permit. And it's economically stifled. Not very many things are allowed to enter, although life does carry on in the occupied West Bank. That is as opposed to Gaza, which is under military occupation and siege by the Israeli army. And that is a strict, strict situation in which nothing can enter and nothing can exit. 
I mean, people are in need of, of medical attention, and still the Israeli authorities will not let these people out for cancer treatment or for certain things. And also because through the siege, Israel has completely stifled the Palestinian body. They've put a calorie intake on Palestinians. I believe it was like 1,400 or something like that. There will be no water available for Palestinians by, I believe, the year 2020 through a UN report. Uh, Gaza is just basically constrained, and that is why it's called the the open-air prison, because it is one of the most densely populated areas in the world, yet no one can leave or enter. And then you have the rest of Palestine, which is known as Israel, um, which was traditionally Palestine before 1948. Um, and that includes cities like Jerusalem, that includes cities like Tel Aviv, like Yaffa, um, like Haifa. And so those are the three parts of Palestine. And there are Palestinians living in Israel, those who, who maintained presence there, and they live there with Israeli citizenship. But through that, they uh, live as second-class citizens with fewer resources, with lots of modes of discrimination. And so that's why when we talk about Palestine, we talk about it in terms of there's military occupation, there's siege, and there's also apartheid, because we currently have two laws for two different people. Um, and Palestinians get the low end of that bar. How does the Israeli government distinguish Palestinians living in Israel from other citizens? Um, yeah, it's written onto your identity, on your, on your citizenship card. And it's actually very interesting. When I go to Palestine, I don't have any citizenship. When I go to the Israeli airport, I don't have any citizenship. Yet, they know that I am a Palestinian by my name and through their intelligence systems. And through that, I'm put through a different process than any other person who is not a Palestinian entering Israel. And so I have to go through interrogation. I have to go through giving them information about my family. It, it's an intelligence system and it's completely predicated off of Jewish or non-Jewish, and then what is your skin color? Because there's also a social hierarchy in Israel as well in terms of European Jews are treated much, much better than African Jews. African Jews are actually deported, and there's also been reports of ster forced sterilization. So there are, there's a lot of racism, and it's compounded by classifying people by faith and by ethnicity. Can you go back to the forced sterilization? Because I think that's important, because mm -hmm. that's a tool that's been used here in the United States mm -hmm. against indigenous women. Yep. And I don't think a lot of people know about it. Uh, can you explain a little bit more about uh, what that is? Yeah, it's essentially in line with Israel's demographic campaign to manipulate the population of Israel. And that's by ensuring that there is a higher rate of white European Jews than there are people from Africa. People from, I believe a lot of people from Sudan have gone. Um, and sterilization is used to ensure that that population does not grow. And actually, you will see Israeli officials refer to Palestinians as demographic threats. So you are aware that there is this campaign going on. And the state uses various tools, such as forced sterilization, on people to manipulate that population. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the settlements, too? 
um, because that that's that's another tool that's been used, and it's it's there's a lot of these tools have been used by other colonizers mm-hmm. and other places. It's pretty common. So can you explain how the settlements work yeah. and how that's a tool of oppression? Yeah, I'm really glad that you're tying it into other colonialist projects as well, because what Israel is doing is nothing new. It's the same thing here that happened to indigenous people. Like we're sitting on Duwamish land. We might be sitting on also other tribal land, um, yet we're living in Seattle. This is in itself a settlement. In Israel, there are more new and they're popping up and it's a way of ethnically cleansing Palestinians out of their homes, literally. It's by home evictions and home demolitions. So not only does Israel serve you a home eviction notice, but they will serve you a home demolition notice. And they'll use militarized caterpillar bulldozers to demolish Palestinian homes. And through that, they will demolish certain areas and they'll cleanse the Palestinians out of those areas. And they'll put in this new, really modern settlement and it will be fenced off by military security. It will be furnished with so much resources, it'll have so much water and light and electricity and heating. And it will be only Jews allowed to live there. And no one can enter, no one can leave, or or no Palestinian can enter without a permit. That's what happened to my village in Beit Jada. Uh, half of it was taken to be created into a settlement. And the way that Israel basically continues this is by taking these lands and claiming it as part of Jerusalem because they are currently in within the Green Line. They are going into the West Bank, the supposed Palestinian state, and taking those lands. And the way that they're justifying it is that they're creating it as part of the Jerusalem mun- municipality. And so it, it is a current tool employed by Israel. It's one of the most deadliest tools to cleanse Palestinians off that land. They want to make sure that for the people who do remain around these settlements, that life is incredibly difficult for these people. So, for instance, like the very basic necessity of water in Palestine. Um, more water is allocated to the settlements than it is to Palestinians water for Palestinians is rationed. Um, And so life is incredibly difficult through the military occupation and through resources and through economics. And it's done through this really strategic outlining of the West Bank. It, It literally looks like Swiss cheese if you look at it. The West Bank is this, supposedly it's supposed to be this solid plot, but now it just is taken up all by settlements. Mm hmm And it's just, it's, it's, it's a difficult, issue because um, whatever the solution is like you know mm-hmm. people lose you know it's like it's the spite over land and it's not like you can easily like you know figure that out when there's like one piece of land you know yeah it's a claiming of Palestinian land it's a by claiming it as, as Israeli replacing Palestinians with their desired population which is Jewish people Um, And then that's why this ties into food so much is like Palestinians are literally disappearing from this from their ancestral land. One way for us to continue our legacy there is by being so proud of our food and our culture and our heritage and holding on to what it is that makes us strive and resist these huge systems that want to basically destroy our existence. Let's dive into the food. Okay. Um, So... 
when you, I think of Palestinian food, I don't really have a good image, except maybe like hummus, you know, falafel, some of those like things that you associate with the Middle East in general, I feel like. How would you kind of describe or define Palestinian food? Well, the Levant in general has similar cuisine, but Palestinian food is going to be tailored to the different cities or the different faiths that are there. Um, and they're going to have additional staples to it. So, like, Palestinian falafel is going to be much different than, like, Egyptian falafel, which they call ta'amiya. But there are little tweaks here and there, and there are also dishes that Palestinians have that other people don't have in the Levant, like, in, in Lebanon and in Syria as well. But Palestinian food really, like, the way I like to think about it is that it traditionally centers around these few staples. It centers around olive oil, lemon juice, salt, and garlic. And it's usually a variation of vegetables that are used. What are some popular staple dishes? So I was researching this because there's so many. <laughs> um, I think one thing that many Palestinians will mention to you if you ask them is something called mensaf. And mensaf is rice mixed with pine nut and mixed with lamb. And then sometimes it's traditionally accompanied by goat milk. Sounds mm. super weird, but it's actually excellent. <laughs> There's also something called makluba, and makluba in Arabic is actually, literally means upside down, mm -hmm. and it's this rice that is cooked for hours with either cauliflower, eggplant, or chicken, um, and it's cooked in a pot, and the way that it is served is you put this tray above the pot, and you flip both the pot and the plate so that when you lift the pot off the plate, the rice still takes the shape of the pot. Mm. Yeah, um, and it's served with yogurt on the side as well. Oh, God, there's just so many things. <laughs> there's also my favorite dish, which is called wara ainab, or warak duwali, and it is stuffed grape leaves. A lot of people in the West know what that is because it's served at Lebanese restaurants or at Greek restaurants. But for Palestinians, it's served as a hot dish, mm. and it can either be made with meat or no meat. And the grape leaves are often from people's own gardens. Like, you know where you're getting your grape leaves from. And it's simmered for hours. For instance, it could be simmered for 8 to 10 hours. And these grape leaves just basically boil in water and soak up all the water. And it's served in the same way like makluba is. You just lift the pot and it takes <laughs> the plate of the pot. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Let's talk about, you've said that you've spent a lot of summers growing up going back to Palestine with your families. You talk about some of those experiences, specifically some food experiences. Like when you go back each summer, were there certain dishes or places that you were really excited to visit? Yeah, oh my god, that's such a great question. <laughs> um, so the first time I went to Palestine was when I was eight years old. And it was such a magical trip because it was my first introduction into this whole world that was mine. My father introduced me to this huge part of him that I never really knew about. So I was in an adventure mode. I was trying everything. I was doing everything. I was climbing everything. <laughs> <laughs> and one very distinct memory that I have is that I was living in Bethlehem at that time. But we also have family up in northern Palestine in Nazareth. And I went to go visit my extended family over there. And I was served a dish called kubbeniye. And what it is essentially is raw meat. And it sounds very weird. <laughs> I didn't know I was eating raw meat at the time. But it's raw meat and it's 
mixed with, I believe, like some type of, I'm not quite sure what it is mixed with, but on top of it is olive oil and a salad. It was fantastic. (laughs) My dad didn't tell me it was wrong. (laughs) He didn't want to freak me out. But later on, when I was maybe 16 or 17, and I went back to Nazareth, I had the same plate, and I saw my, one of my aunties prepare. (laughs) Like, so are you... Like, are you going to cook that? <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, no, no. You're making what you love. <laughs> um, so that's one thing. Another experience that I had is, so I live in the occupied West Bank. It's currently under military occupation. Nobody can leave or exit without a permit from the Israeli authorities, which is incredibly difficult to get. I'm privileged in a sense that I don't have a Palestinian citizenship. I have American citizenship, so I'm allowed to exit the occupation. But my cousins, who were born and raised there, are not allowed to go to Jerusalem, even though it's 10 minutes away, because they need that permit. So I got the chance to go to northern Palestine. I went to a city called Yaffa, and Yaffa is also known as Tel Aviv. It was colonized, and it was a lot of settlers there by Israel. And I went and I had Palestinian seafood, which I didn't know was a thing, because the occupied <laughs> West Bank is not next to a sea. <laughs> it's next to the Dead Sea, but nothing in there at least. <laughs> so um, I had shrimp, and I just remember being in such a euphoric place, like sitting on the seaside of Palestine and eating Palestinian shrimp from the Mediterranean Sea. And the sun was blaring down, and I was with my cousins who were visiting from Peru, and it was... It was a magical moment that I noticed that Palestinian cuisine is truly so versatile. But because we're in the West Bank, we only get to see parts of it. That sounds really nice. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. And then one other thing is uh, my favorite city in Palestine is Jerusalem. I know I'm from Bethlehem, so I'll represent Bethlehem the day I die. (laughs) But my favorite city is Jerusalem. And every time I go, I will have these same things every single time. I will have carrot juice, fresh carrot juice. Um, made mm. by a vendor on the street. I will have something called imtabba, and this is by some place called Zalatimos, which has been there for 150 years by the Damascus Gate. Wow. And it's the same family that's been running this store, and it's literally a hole in the wall with a table and a chair. <laughs> there is no decorations. <laughs> and this man will make you a phyllo dough stuffed with sweet cheese. And he'll do it by his hand, and you watch him toss the phyllo dough. Or I don't know if it's phyllo dough, but you watch him toss the dough and you watch him bake it. And that is always so good to me. And then I will typically have a shawarma, which is customary in Palestine. (laughs) Uh, That sounds, I I love hole in the wall anywhere. They're just like so special when you find them. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is Jerusalem is the first place that Zalatimos operates. It's a family. Mm. It's a family name. But what I later figured out is that in Jordan, they have one of the largest, like, sweet shops. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah, so um, I think people know that that hole in the wall is there, but it's so hidden, <laughs> and it's so quiet. It has no decor, no appeal, so it truly is like a, a hole in the wall. <laughs> <laughs> is there, can you talk a little bit about the street food? Uh, in Palestine? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Uh, it really varies in Bethlehem. The biggest street food you're going to find is falafel, and that's because Mm -hmm. we have a family in Bethlehem called Fatim, and they are the masters of falafel. (laughs) And they have this very, very popular restaurant there, and you will often find it on the streets as well. And it's just this huge, like it's the size of your palm almost, like hot falafel out of the grease, (laughs) and they serve (laughs) it to you. 
There's also lots of street food, as in shawarma, lots of shawarma that you could just go and grab and get out. But really, most of the street food I see is juice. There's lots mm. of different types of juices there. Carrot juice, um, pomegranate juice. Are they, like, sweetened or at all, or are they pretty organic? <laughs> I, I think they're organic, but the thing is because um, the vegetables and fruits in Palestine are so natural and organic, they're naturally sweet. Ah. They're just so healthy in that way that when you're drinking something, you don't need to add any sugar, any flavors to it. Oh, I imagine that's really refreshing on a <laughs> summer day. So one of the hardest parts of coming back to the States after Palestine is like eating vegetables and fruits there and tasting all the flavor and then coming back here and like, you know, having yeah. to get used to <laughs> no flavor. Yeah, it is pretty amazing, I feel like, because other guests have talked about like how when they go back to their countries, you can get like natural fruit mm-hmm. or vegetables. And it's something that we really don't have here because, you know, we just, get everything at the supermarket Pretty and much. travel hundreds of miles to get here and whatnot. But yeah, it's something that's uh, sorely missed here, I guess. That's true. My grandfather lives on a, in a garden and mm. we grow almonds and olives. Oh, wow. Yeah. So when I was a kid, I would just sit literally on top of the almond tree <laughs> and have a rock in my hand and just sit and hit these almonds for hours to get to the core and just eat them. <laughs> and I try to do that here in America where I'd go buy like the you know, the raw almonds, and they don't taste the same. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I'm sure. (laughs) I was reading a lot about how Israeli food cuisine has, like, taken off, and then there's been frustration amongst Palestinian chefs over, like, you know, there's so many similarities and stuff. It's like, why hasn't Palestinian food taken off? And I was wondering if you had any insight to that. The frustration comes from, I'm not not a lack of taking off, but the rebranding of Israeli cuisine, which is a um, cultural appropriation. But I feel actually more comfortable calling it a theft by nature. Um, And the reason why is that Palestinian culture, Palestinian food and Levant food in general has been around for ages. Long, 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 long time. But when it's being rebranded and capitalized as Israeli food, it's Part, it's contributing to the colonial project of disappearing Palestinians. And that is the reason why Palestinians are very offended and resist these violent attacks on the destruction of their culture. It's an attempt to erase the link between Palestinians and uh, their culture and to, to the homeland, really. And there's lots of amazing literature written specifically about this, about cultural appropriation and Israel's huge PR machine that generates this narrative that Israeli cuisine, it's, it's great, you know. But really, it's just Palestinian food being branded as Israeli. I remember one time I was walking in Jerusalem. I was 14 years old, and I was with my grandpa. He's 94. And we were walking, and I passed by a poster, and it was a falafel sandwich in it. It had on the top, Israel's national snack. Mm. And then inside the pita bread was this hoisted Israeli flag. And I remember that sat so uncomfortably with me for such a long time until I later realized that that is literally and figuratively a conquering of Palestinian culture. It's a robbery of Palestinian culture while cleansing Palestinians from that land, but holding on to the things that they left and then claiming it as your own. It's an organized campaign, really, and it contributes to the ongoing Zionist project of removing anything Palestinian in that land, keeping 
what they want, but rebranding it as Israeli. And I think that really speaks to how food is very powerful and that it's such a connection to culture. A tool, I guess, of oppressors is to destroy culture, and food is such a big part of that. I would agree. And for Palestinians, I feel like the the need to hold on to the culture is so great because really our physical existence in the land is currently being cleansed out of there. And our claim to a physical land isn't there. It's there, but we don't have a homeland to go to. For instance, when I want to go to Palestine, it's really risky for me to go. And refugees still can't return. So one way for us to claim onto our culture in, in all of these organized campaigns to basically destroy our existence is through our heritage. It's through speaking our language. It's through teaching our children our language. It's through making these foods and teaching our kids to make these foods so that we still have the element of being a Palestinian within us despite the fact that we don't have that in the land. It's sort of like a decolonization within, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Which reflects outwards, you know, not letting your own culture yeah. be diminished, even if you're physically, like, being diminished. Exactly, exactly. That's why I think it's so important to for Palestinians to continue our legacy, because I don't want to give in to, <laughs> you know, Israel's campaign to cleanse me and my history and my legacy. That's why it's very important for Palestinians to continue their legacy through teaching their children their language, their stories, their narrative, their foods, their traditions. And I, I love that part of being Palestinian is that we hold on to all of that. Yeah, I think it's like interesting because I don't know really what the, I guess like I was just thinking about like who came to live in Israel mm-hmm. when they were given that state, what foods they brought with them and like how they came to, I guess, like claim Palestinian food. Do you know anything about That's that? That's a really great subject. And I want to be able to flag um, a really important part of that is that the majority of those living within Israel are European. But there are, within that, there are uh, Jews from the Arab world, there are Jews from India, um, Mizrahi Jews came from the Arab world, there's Sephardic Jews from Spain. There's, it's so varied. And so I want to make sure that, like we mentioned, that Jewish people did make these foods. Um, like, for instance, shakshuka is a food that's been often debated. It's a North African food, uh, a North African breakfast food of eggs and tomatoes. Really delicious. And there was, I believe I read a recent article that it was created by a Moroccan Jew. So people are comfortable claiming it as Israeli. Mm. But at the time, they weren't contributing that food to Israel. They were contributing it to the culture that they were living within. Israel was created in 1948. You're going to say that a food that was created, what, in like the 1500s (laughs) is later going to be Israeli. Um, So it's important to recognize Jewish contributions to uh, these foods and to the arts and to culture and to all of that without erasing it and rebranding it as something that it's not. Yeah, so I think an important distinction for people is there's Israel, which is like the created state. Mm-hmm. And then there's like the Jewish population, but there's other people who are not Jewish living in Israel. So it's like, I think it's important to kind of distinguish the two mm-hmm. so that you understand that it's like when you say something's Israeli, I guess it's like a label, it's like it's like a new, it's, it's new, you know, it's a term that was exactly. created for this day. A hundred percent, and that's part of the cultural appropriation part of it is that Israel is trying to brand itself as an indigenous culture. 
it's rebranding um, it's basically rebranding that and it wants to present that image and so it's claiming onto these things it's claiming onto other elements of people's indigenous culture and taking it as their own so that that's part of it well Let's move on to something a little bit lighter. <laughs> yeah, do you have any restaurant recommendations for good and good shawarma or falafel? I don't think there's any, I don't know if there's Palestinian restaurants around here. The only one I can think of is Alla Eddin on the Ave. People know it as Aladdin's, and I believe they're actually a family from Bethlehem. Oh, wow. Yeah, um, I have not had Palestinian food here, um, but I have heard of Alla Eddin's. There's also, I believe, the golden olive in queen anne but i will have to actually like look it up but in other case there is restaurants that do serve palestinian food or are there places that you like to go to or your favorite places to go to you know i don't eat arabic food out because my (laughs) parents feel like it's a slap in their face (laughs) my dad dad will be so offended if he knew i went and got like a shawarma or falafel somewhere outside because he makes it so he's he's a chef and he makes it himself so um that's why (laughs) but my roommate loves to eat arabic food out and she loves shawarma king and okay. she loves, I believe there was another one on the app. There's also Memnoon, which is a higher-end restaurant. But they also have a street food compartment as well. And they serve um, Arabic fusion food. I've heard it's good. Okay. Yeah. Let's go back to the fact that your dad's like a chef. Because like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's like growing up. That's got to be beneficial. <laughs> yeah, so did you grow up then eating a lot of Palestinian food at home? Yeah. And like... Um, so my father is an engineer, but in his hobby, he is an excellent okay. chef. And yeah, I grew up eating a lot of Palestinian food. And my mother is actually not a Palestinian. My mother is Egyptian. Mm. And when my father married her, he taught her how to make <laughs> Palestinian food. So we always were surrounded by Palestinian food. Um, and my dad often introduced new dishes to us because his favorite thing is going on YouTube and searching <laughs> and trying to make it his own. And also, so I used to have my grandparents come visit us when I was a kid from Palestine. Before my grandmother passed away, she would um, come pretty often. And I would get to taste Palestinian food from Palestine. Mm. She would come and she'd make very traditional dishes. And I wouldn't know what it was. <laughs> I'd be really afraid to try it at first, but it was usually really, um, really excellent. And every time someone from Palestine would come, they would also actually send homemade spices or something from Palestine. So a lot of the spices I grew up from, we didn't purchase them in stores here, in Arabic stores in the United States. They were usually sent from Palestine, and we preserved them uh, pretty well. Do you cook at all? I do, but I don't cook Palestinian <laughs> food. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm going to learn before I get married. Because <laughs> I have to. <laughs> well, at least you will have your dad to help you out I know, there, I right? Know. Well, Ugh, my there. mom's going to hear this podcast. She's going to be so sad. <laughs> <laughs> it's not too late. It's not too late. Yeah. Start with something easy, maybe. It's true. <laughs> but I do. I intend to learn. Like I said, I want to continue the legacy. Yeah, like, yeah. I want to be able to you know, feed my kids the same food that I got to eat Mm -hmm. when I was a kid. Are there any Palestinian desserts that are um, good that you'd like to share? Yes, actually. (laughs) Um, The most famous Palestinian dessert, and everybody knows it, every Arab knows it, is called Kanefe Nebelsiya. And what that is, is it's, I believe, shredded wheat. 
um, soaked in a very sugary sauce. Underneath it is the layer of melted sweet cheese. It's incredible. So when you're pulling a slice off of the pan, the cheese will just go uh-huh. on and on and on and on and on. Um, and the reason why it's called canefa, nebelsia, is because it that cheese originates from Nablus. Nablus is a, a town in occupied Palestine. Mm. And so whenever you go to Nablus, you need to have canefa, <laughs> nebelsia. And other uh, Arab countries have adopted this, okay. this uh, recipe as well. And it's referred to as canefa, nebelsia. What does the sweet cheese like taste like? Is there anything you can compare it to? I, it's really just mozzarella with sugar. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's really good. <laughs> I can't think of something um, except for this one pretzel I had in Disneyland <laughs> that had sweet cheese in it. <laughs> that sounds really good. It is. There's also ba'lawa, which is baklava. You see that a lot in Greek restaurants. But Palestinians make it in various different shapes and forms with different types of nuts in it. I personally like the one with no nuts in it, um, and I like it made with phyllo dough, and then it's just topped with something called atar, which is just a sugary syrup, and it's amazing to have out of the oven. Yeah. <laughs> it tastes really, really good. And there's also something called traditionally made during Ramadan, um, and it's something called atayef, or katayef, and it is basically dough that looks like like ha- <laughs> half a circle. And it's stuffed with sweet cheese. And then on top of it is, it's covered in a sugary syrup, but it's fried. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's, either, it's either filled with cheese or it's either filled with nuts. Oh. And it's served typically in Ramadan, but um, all, a lot of Arabs make it that are not Muslim as well. Oh, that sounds so good. It's great. <laughs> it's great. Oh, I feel like everyone else's desserts are very exciting. American desserts, I was like saying to another guest, they just kind of like punch you in the face with their sweetness. They do. It's like, oh my gosh. Chocolate everything or whatever. Yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> do you want to talk a little bit about the Palestinian Awareness Week here uh, on campus? Sure. And uh, how people can find out about it, what's going on, the different events and whatnot? Yeah, so Palestine Awareness Week is basically where just a Palestinian group on campus known as SUPER, Students United for Palestinian Equal Rights, brings Palestine to the university for a whole week. And typically they will have a mock apartheid wall put up. In my days, it was in the Red Square, and it was a huge wall as well. But typically they'll put it in the quad, and it's an apartheid wall to symbol or to show people what is currently happening in Palestine. And often throughout the year, SUPER uh, coordinates with Mecha, and they also poured up, uh, put up the U.S.-Mexican border mm. on the other side of the wall. And it, it's just this huge apartheid wall that people got to walk through in the quad, and it really has to resonate with them. And so in, in addition to that being a part of it, Palestine Awareness Week is to showcase Palestinian culture. And I believe that SUPER has a lot of events planned. So actually on Tuesday is going to be an event at my school, at the law school. And it is a Social Justice Tuesday. And we'll have Professor Karam Dana talking about Palestinian public opinion. And then there's also a Know Your Rights workshop by Palestine Legal. And that's a whole other story as well. But it's basically just for (laughs) activists who are currently being silenced by different organizations. How to go about your activism, how to know your rights. On Wednesday, there's Miko Pilet, I believe, at 1130, which is co-sponsored by Jewish Voice for Peace. 
and it's called oh and then there's also another thing called pink washing exposed seattle fights back a film screaming at 6 30 in smith 120 and then on thursday there's a palestine 101 and traditional palestinian food demonstration and dinner at 5 p.m the location hasn't been put yet <laughs> and then friday is justice speaks open mic night at 5 p.m in hub 334 okay well that sounds like a great many great events that people can go to yeah and i think there's like a facebook event page right i believe so i'll see if i can find that and then put it uh on the website along with this podcast so people can figure out where they can go and when they can go are you still part of the super group or you were part of the super group i was when i was an undergraduate i'm not right now okay um but i do try to help out as much as possible can you talk a little bit more about the general things they do year-round, I guess, and yeah. if people are interested? Sure. Um, so they hold, I believe this year they incorporated something new called Depka classes, and Depka is the Palestinian traditional dance, and they teach it to people. And there's an all-genders class, and there's a women-only class, and it's taught by, I think, Neji. He is a great I don't know how to say Depka Erd. I don't know how to combine the two. Um, And so they do that, but often they host um, educational events year round. Last year they had Remy Kanazi, who was a spoken word artist, come out. They had a Palestine cultural festival, including art and dance and poetry. They also host important speakers, Palestine human rights speakers. In my year, we hosted Omar Barghouti, we hosted Stephen Saleda. And this year, actually, we'll be hosting Noura Arakat, who's an international human rights attorney. So we're basically super brings Palestine to campus by bringing these important speakers to talk about certain pieces of Palestine. Well, hopefully people will check that out, the group out, and the events happening this week. So we're coming to the end, and I like to do a segment. Oh, oh. I messed up. Um, I also want to say that super is... Uh, a proponent and advocate for the BDS campaign, which is the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions movement, which is uh, basically resistance to Israel's ongoing Zionist project. And it's done through the methods that were employed in South Africa, apartheid. So it's done through various boycotts, um, such as boycotting Sabra Hummus. It's sold on campus, but it's created in an illegal Israeli settlement. Mm. Um, Divestment is something that we did in my year where uh, the university is currently invested in companies that profit off of human rights abuses in Palestine. How do we get the company to divest those funds and invest them in ethical funds? Um, and sanctions ultimately is sanctioning Israel until they comply with international law. And that's currently the form of res- one of the forms of resistance that Palestinians, Palestine activists are employing. And Super uh, does that at the student level. Good to know. Yeah. So one of the segments I like to do is uh, drunk food and junk food. <laughs> so um, I ask my guests what their favorite drunk food or if they prefer junk food is uh-huh. from their foods culture. Uh-huh. So, uh, yeah, do you have a favorite drunk oh food or junk food? Yeah, uh, me and my roommate <laughs> have stories. But there's something we like to eat called meneish, which is basically a fluffy, thick bread with salty cheese on the top and olive oil. Or you could put thyme, which is called zatar in Arabic, 
and it's cooked and heated and you take it out and it's just basically this bread with cheese on it and za'atar and olive oil and that is incredibly good to have as a late night snack when you are <laughs> drunk or <laughs> under the influence <laughs> yeah um so there's there's that and also there's a lot of things called like cheese fatayers which is basically dough wrapped in in cheese you could do lebne which is um, dipping pita bread, hot pita bread, into yogurt and olive oil. There's a lot of <laughs> There's a lot of great things. And so lastly, I love to get a favorite food memory from my guests. So uh, you, you mentioned a couple, I think, you know, mm-hmm. uh, memories that you, you look back fondly upon. But yeah. uh, do you have uh, another specific one? Sure. When I graduated from the UW, my father threw a huge party for me at our house. And his way of showing how proud he was of me, um, and by showing our family, was by roasting a whole entire lamb. Yeah, he bought the thing that holds the lamb (laughs) just to roast it for me. And he roasted it in the backyard for eight hours. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yes, and he um, made maybe like five huge pots of rice. It was kind of like biryani. It was mixed with nuts and raisins and cinnamon very flavorful rice and that was what he gave to me as a Palestinian to his Palestinian daughter upon graduating from college and that touched me so much because it was kind of like tapping into my roots he was like I know you did this awesome like western thing like graduating (laughs) from (laughs) University of Washington but here's like a little plate of your roots and I'm very proud of you yeah. That's really sweet. Yeah. <laughs> Did you guys finish uh, finish the lamb? It took us three days to finish <laughs> it, but we also had 12 family members okay. staying with us. Time, <laughs> so <laughs> we finished it. Well, great. Thank you so much for being on this podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And hopefully our guests will check out some of the events this week. Um, I'll be sure to post a link. And yeah, thank you so much for being here and thank you for listening. This has been another episode of Home Plates.